I'm going to read you a passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 36. We're going to talk about the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to talk about the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, 36. Then, came, then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go pray, while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Father, I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you'd speak to us mightily through the power of your word and by the power of your spirit. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. The experience of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was the apex, the climax of his suffering. When we talk about the life of Jesus, his human life, the moment he took on human flesh, he began to suffer. And the entirety of his incarnation life can be described by the word suffering. His entire life, from the moment of his birth to the moment of his death, it can be described as suffering. Prior to his incarnation and virgin birth, he experienced no suffering. He had no physical body. He was the eternal word, the eternal son of God. He sat at the right hand of God. The angels from heaven, the angels of heaven worshiped him. All of creation brought him glory. He gave up all of that to come and be born in a lowly manger. You look at the Apostles' Creed, which is a truncated version of the Nicene Creed, which has been the statement of faith that the church has clung to for 1,700 years now. That was the essence of the faith of the early church going all the way back to the beginning. It states, I believe in God the Father Almighty and Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. Birth suffering, 
death. This is the life of Jesus. And he suffered many things in his life. But this is the height of his suffering. This is the climax of his suffering. This is the apex of his suffering. And he, he comes to a place at this moment where he says, I can't take any more of this. He's never prayed this prayer before. All of the previous suffering that he has endured, he's been able to endure it just fine. But this time, this moment, he's come to the end of his rope and he says, I can't take this. Father, if it's your will, if it's possible, don't let me have to drink this cup. What's coming next, it's too much for me, Father. I've come to the end of my rope and I can't go any further. So I'm, I'm saying, Father, haven't I suffered enough? The agony of it, all of us have had, most of us have had Gethsemane moments. And I'd say all of us have had Gethsemane moments. Even if you're young and you're 13 or 12 or, or 6 years old, you've had your Gethsemane moment for the first 6 or 12 or 13 years of your life. You can look back on one point and say, that was the deepest suffering that I ever experienced. But you'll continue to have Gethsemane moments throughout your life that'll get deeper and deeper and deeper. Until you finally look back and say, that was the climax. That was the height of it. That was the place where I felt like, I can't take this anymore. I can't handle another minute of this. The question that we're going to consider tonight is, what do you do in your Gethsemane? How do you make it through your Gethsemane? How do you survive Gethsemane? Because Jesus had a choice. He could have walked away and said, F this. I'm done with this. I've suffered enough. I've put up with enough of their nonsense. They don't believe me. Even when I do miracles, they try to kill me. They lie against me. And I put up with it. I'm not putting up with anything else. I'm done. Peace. He could have walked away. But he remained obedient to the Father in the face of his Gethsemane. And what we discover is that many walk away from their faith in Christ simply because they find themselves in their Gethsemane. And it's at Gethsemane that many turn away and say, I'm done with this. The fact of the matter is that if you're going to walk with Christ, you're going to come to Gethsemane. There's no such thing as walking with Christ and not finding yourself in a Gethsemane at some point. No such thing. Your walk with Christ will lead you to your Gethsemane moment. And if there's one key to living the overcomer's life, don't fail your Gethsemane. Don't fail your Gethsemane. Don't fail your Gethsemane. You might fail in a hundred different places along the way, but when you come to your Gethsemane, you better pass that test. You better pass that test. So there's a few things that Jesus does. First thing he does is he leaves the crowd behind. This passage of Scripture says, starts by telling us he just took the 12. He's like, this moment of suffering, you don't do this in front of the crowd. What I'm going through right now, and, and remember we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that there were the 12 that he chose, and there were 120 more that followed him everywhere. He sent away the 120. 
When you're in your deepest moment of suffering, your inner circle should be comprised only of people of your choosing. You better have an inner circle of fellowship that you can trust, that you can lean on, that you can depend on, but the worst thing you can do in your Gethsemane is push them all away. I've seen it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again that people disappear completely in the moment of their Gethsemane. Rejecting all forms of community, all forms of support. I'm going to walk through my Gethsemane by myself. Even Jesus didn't do that. He calls the 12 and says, we've got to go to Gethsemane. I need you there. I need you guys close to me at this moment. I need you to be with me at this moment. And he takes them. You got to know who your 12 are. You got to know who your inner circle is. The inner circle that you've chosen, not simply the people that want to be close to you. There was a scandal of particularity in the choosing of Jesus. He chose 12, which means that he rejected everybody else. For this place to be in these 12, I've got to choose you. And I will not make any explanations as to why I chose this person and not this person. Your inner circle is your inner circle. You choose who you choose. The first thing you do is you connect with your 12. You have an inner circle of community. You don't go blasting all of your emotions all over the world, putting it on Facebook, posting it on Instagram, putting it on TikTok. That's not what you do in your Gethsemane. You don't go attacking people, writing sharp letters to people. Like, you know, you don't, you, that's not what you do. You don't strike out in your Gethsemane. You've got to take a step back and retreat into the comfort of your inner 12, your community of support. You just better make sure that when that Gethsemane comes, you've got solid people around you. Because some of you have chose the wrong people for your inner 12. Not that, and by the way, I, there's a lot of this preaching in, in the body of Christ that says, you need to go through your phone book and X people out. And, and no, that's not what it's all about. You can have many friends who say, I love this person, but he's not coming into my inner 12. You, do you see the difference? I can love you with all of my heart, but that doesn't mean I have to welcome you into my inner sanctum. That's reserved for a choice, few people. But secondly, the fact that he steps aside with his inner 12 doesn't mean that he depends on them. He's not overly dependent upon him, them. He doesn't retreat within his 12 so that he can delegate his emotions to them yeah. or delegate to them responsibility for what he's going through or question them as to why they're not more supportive of he, That's not what he does. He brings them because he needs them close. But then he says to them, stay here. I'm sorrowful, I've got to go over here and pray. It's still my walk with God. I'm still the one that, God's, that has to deal with it. I just need you folks close. I just need to be able to feel your presence and know you're close. You understand the difference? And then he takes his inner three, Peter, James, and John, and says, come with me. And he brings them a little further. And he says, stay here. And he gives them a little deeper explanation. My soul is sorrowful even unto death. Stay here, watch and pray with me. 
here. And then he goes off by himself. You need to understand that when it's time to pray, no one can pray for you. They can only pray with you. A lot of times when people say, will you pray for me? Nope. But I will pray with you from a distance. And I mean that in the most loving way. Because the one thing you can never do is pray through someone who's not willing to pray through them for themselves. When you hit your Gethsemane, nobody can pray you through it. Your three can be from a distance praying with you. But this is between me and God. This, be, this moment is between me and God. It's between you and God. If you look at what Jesus does all night long, he steps aside and he prays, Oh, Father, you know all things. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, your will be done, but not mine. And then he goes back to his inner three. Y'all are sleeping? Wake up. Come on, I need y'all to pray right now. Watch and pray. And he's concerned for them. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Your spirit is willing but your flesh is weak. Come on, y'all need to be praying right now. And then he goes back by himself. Oh, do you, do you feel the back and forth anxiety of Jesus? You ever experienced that kind of anxiety where you're praying, but then you got to step out and go say hi to the family or something? It's like, and then I can go back and pray. You know what I mean? I'm trying to pray through it, and then I have to step out and call a friend and say, hey, hey what's going on, buddy? You know what I mean? Yeah. And then you go back in and pray, you know, and then you go to the bathroom, you sit on the toilet, and you, so you scroll on Instagram for a few minutes. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I need just a little bit of a, a, little bit of a respite, a little bit of a break. Don't look at me like you ain't done that before. I know you do that every day. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, mm -mm. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's like you need just a little space, just a little bit of a break, just a little bit. And then, but you know you got to go back in. You see that anxiety that Jesus does this four times. Four times. And each time, he finds that he's got his inner circle, but none of them understand him. Now you know you're in Gethsemane. Because when you're truly in your Gethsemane, nobody can understand you. Yeah. Not fully. I mean, they can be there with you. They're there. The disciples are there. We're with you. But nobody fully understands you in your Gethsemane. Yeah. And Jesus had a choice. He could have become bitter about that. See, a lot of us, we can become bitter because somebody didn't understand us in our deepest moment. Yeah. You got to let that go. There's no way they could have understood. There's no way the disciples could have understood what Jesus was going through right now. To them, it was just another night. They're still, what, what, what are you so sorrowful about? You know, it's kind of like being a husband. What's the matter? What's wrong? Like, what's, why, wait, why, why are you crying? Is it me? Did I do something? Is it something I said? Like, husbands, we are so silly and ignorant. We have no clue what our wives are going through most of the time. And for us as husbands, the discipline is to learn how to stay lovingly present even when you don't understand what's going on. But wives, 
just have to learn how to forgive us. Because <laughs> as Bishop Kirby says, the strength of marriage is not intimacy, it's forgiveness. <laughs> so forgive me, baby. Finally, Jesus goes back, and the final prayer he prays is this. Lord, if it's not possible that this cup should pass from me, your will be done, not mine. Yeah. Your will be done, not mine. It's like there's this moment of embrace. And then he comes back and finds his disciples sleeping again. And he wakes them up again. He says, what's wrong with you guys? Come on, man. Y'all got to pray. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. And as he's speaking those words, the betrayer shows up. There's almost this sense, you can feel like the anxiety of Jesus as I kept reading through this passage, and it's in all four of the Gospels, that Jesus is worried that he's not ready for what's getting ready to happen. He's worried that he doesn't have the stuff to make it through what's getting ready to go down. He's worried, and it's like, I need, you ever been in that place where it's like, I know I got to go through this, but I need something to happen in me first. I need something to break. I need something to move. I need something to give me the confidence to know that I'm ready. And it's like he keeps going back and forth to God, to the disciples, to God, to the disciples, to God, to the disciples. This is actually how you strengthen yourself in the life of faith. Is going back and forth to God and the disciples, to God and the disciples, to God and the disciples. That should be the way we live our lives. It's going back and forth between God and the disciples. And the problem is most of us X out one of the two of them. We just keep going to the disciples and 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 the disciples. And if the only thing you do when you hit your troubled point is go try to find a disciple to help you through it. You don't go to God for yourself. All you're doing is delegating responsibility for your spiritual life to people that you think are more mature than you. Or if you just go to God and to God, to God and to God, to God and to God, but I don't need any of the disciples. Even Jesus didn't do that. You think you're more spiritual than Jesus. I mean, if you truly believe that you don't need the body of Christ, then you believe yourself to be more spiritual than Jesus because he was the Messiah, the Son of God. He had a mission from God that no one in the history of the world has ever had, but even he did not try to do it by himself. The first thing he did is call together 12 disciples and seek to fulfill his mission and community. When was the last time you reached out and told some folks, I'm having a Gethsemane moment right now. You don't have to call it that. I'm in trouble. I'm going through trouble. I'm having a tough time right now. I didn't realize until the last year that I have a real problem doing that. My knee jerk is, I'm fine. Fine. To everybody except her, I tell everybody I'm fine except her. And what tends to happen is 
I think I'm fine. I pretend to be fine. But I don't realize that I take it out on her sometimes. And then I realize, oh, I wasn't fine all along. I was just pretending to be. Do you have a group of disciples that you can reach out to in your Gethsemane and say, I need you guys to hold me up right now? I need your support right now. I need your presence right now. I need to be cared for right now. I'm not okay. I dare say the vast majority of believers think themselves more spiritual than Jesus. Because we either think we don't need that if we don't do it, or we simply lack the humility to do it. Or, you know, we give ourselves excuses and say, I'm just really scared. I'm just really shy. It's another way of saying I'm too proud. Because, you know, if I tell you I'm broken or I'm having a tough time, you might not think as highly of me. But Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm messed up right now, guys. I'm so messed up. I'm sorrowful unto death. I'm so sorrowful right now. I'm really, really sad. And there's nothing any of you guys can say to fix it. So I'm not asking you to fix it. Because that's a problem as well. Because some of us would have had the answer for Jesus. Oh, well, here's all you need to do, Jesus. Here, I'm going to give you these three scriptures. I want you to meditate on these scriptures. Oh, you're sad? Well, that's not the will of God. You can't be sad and walk in the Spirit. You're obviously not walking in the Spirit. <laughs> you believe in the wrong thing. You really believe, you really believe that God's going to let you die. <laughs> right? I mean, we would have given Jesus a sermon in a second. We would have tried to fix this problem, tried to set him free, tried to give him the solution, tell him everything's okay, put a Band-Aid on it. And when we do that to people, what we're literally saying is, you being in trouble is making me feel uncomfortable. So please accept this quick fix so that I can feel better and you can stop messing up my space. When somebody comes to you and says they're sorrowful, if you immediately try to fix it, that is even greater pride than not reaching out when you feel sorrowful. How about just saying, wow, I'm here with you. So sorry that you have to walk through that, but I got you. I'm here. You can call me anytime. We're going to walk through this thing together. I don't have the answer. <laughs> Remember, we were younger. I had some single friends who used to love to do marriage, marriage counseling. <laughs> Never been married before, but they knew what was wrong with every, every marriage. Well, here's what you need to do. <laughs> The last time Jesus goes to pray, this is what he discovers. That the only way out is through. Yeah. He was experiencing deep anxiety, deep fear, deep sorrow, deep anxiousness, and he wanted out. But what he discovered in prayer 
is that the only way out was through. And so he endured the cross. He went to the cross. Meaning he went all the way. Meaning that he did not put any limitations on his obedience to the Father. There was nothing in him that says, you know what, Father, I think I've obeyed you enough, huh? I mean, I've obeyed everything you said, but this is too much. Can't take any more of this. I'm out. Peace. He went all the way. Remember several years ago, Sonny and I were going through a difficult time. And I called Mike Perkinson, Pastor Mike Perkinson. And I was just pouring out my heart. I was like, I can't take any more of this. And how long do I have to put up with this? And you know how we husbands do. And Mike said, Benjamin, who gave you the right to choose how far you? He said, no, he said, Benjamin, do you love Sonny? I said, yes, of course I love Sonny. He goes, then love her all the way. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, did Jesus stop short of the cross and say, you know what, I can't take any more of this? No, he went all the way. Benjamin, you're trying to stop short of the cross in your relationship with your wife. Love her all the way. Don't don't you dare take it upon yourself to put limitations on how far you you will go to obey God in relation to her. You love her all the way. You say, it's killing you, then let it kill you. You love her all the way. This take up your cross and follow me. That's what Jesus is saying. Go all the way. There's so many areas, in every area of life, when you're walking in obedience to God, you come to a point where you say, I can't take any more of this. And what we're often doing is putting a limitation to how far we will go to obey the Father. If it's, if it's possible, can I be done? If it's possible, can I be done? If it's possible, can I walk away? If it's possible, do I still have to put up with any more of this? And sometimes the father says, yes, you can be done. Yeah. I'm not saying every situation is the father saying, no, you've got to endure this indefinitely. <laughs> Except marriage. Unless there's major abuse going on in that marriage, by the way. But that's, I digress. The point is that there's a time when the father says, no, you got to drink this cup. You got to drink this cup. God, I just want to be done. I want to be done because I just want to be rid of this anxiety, this fear, this sense of being overwhelmed. I just need to be done with it. And the father says, I got a way out for you through. There's a way out. It's through. You've got to embrace the cross. You've got to endure the cross. You've got to endure the cross. You've got to endure the cross and despise its shame because this is the thing. The cross is hard, but it does not last forever. It is measured. He hung on it for six hours, and then it was done. 
He could have resisted it for six years and the anxiety would have lasted another six years. He could have resisted it for 40 years and the anxiety would have lasted another 40 years, but he simply embraced it at the moment and said, I'm not going to run from it. I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to hide from it. I'm going to embrace my cross right now. And guess what? Something happens when you make a decision to embrace your cross and go all the way. God blesses you with a quick death. Crazy thing is, I was talking to Mike Perkinson recently. I was like, remember that day you said that to me? He goes, yeah. I said, do you remember what I said I was sick of? He goes, no. I said, neither do I. (laughs) That thing I said, I can't take any more of this. It was like so hard that I can't deal with it. It's killing me. Well, whatever it is must have killed me because I don't even remember what it is. I don't even experience it anymore. Isn't that crazy how when you make a decision to embrace the cross, he gives you a quick death. Six hours. From the third hour to the ninth hour. From nine o'clock in the morning to three o'clock in the afternoon. And the father visited. Listen, crucifixion is supposed to take an entire weekend. The father gave him a quick death. Six hours. And all of a sudden, an authority came on him on the cross. And he said, Father, into thy hands, I commit my spirit. And then he gave up the ghost. The authority to end it came. The authority to to bring it to an end came. The cross is quicker than you think. But it's also harder than you think. I just... It was burning in my spirit today that the word of the Lord is go all the way. Go all the way. Go all the way. Don't stop short of the cross because what happens when you stop short of the cross is you prolong your agony. You prolong your anxiety. You prolong your suffering. Go all the way. What happens is you actually got three choices. You can choose the cross as Jesus did. Or you can choose to be a betrayer and walk away as Judas did. Or you can be a denier and prolong your agony as Peter did. Because who suffered the longest? Think about it. Judas killed himself. He did. Jesus is crucified. He was dead. Peter was suffering all by himself for those three days until the resurrected Lord came and set him free from his suffering. He prolonged his agony. In a sense, his suffering was worse than Judas's because it lasted longer simply because he resisted the cross. He rejected the cross. And that's what the denial of Peter was all about. He didn't want to join Jesus on the cross. When the servant girl said, he's one of his disciples, what is a disciple? A disciple is one who does exactly what his teacher does. If Jesus is going to the cross today, we're probably going to crosses tomorrow if we still follow him. Peter said, "Mm mm-mm. I say no to the cross. Mm-mm. I don't even know the man. And I'm going to throw a few cuss words on it to convince you that I don't know the man. 
And they were like, those cuss words didn't even sound right coming out of your mouth. It sounded so awkward. That was so hard for you to say those words. You ain't fooling nobody. Everybody knows you're one of his disciples. What place in your life have you resisted the cross? You're so scared to say yes to God because it's going to be so hard. So scared to say yes to God because there's something valuable you're going to lose. You don't have to respond tonight or tomorrow or next month or next year. And that's the tragedy. Because if you don't respond, that anxiety that's attached to the knowledge that you are resisting the cross that lives deep in you, it will not leave you. And you can't pray that one away. You can't pray that one away. Obedience always leads us to our Gethsemane moment. The author of the book of Hebrews puts it this way, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who did what? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising its shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How did he endure the cross? For the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross because he knew that on the other side of that cross, there's no fear. That on the other side of that cross, there's no anxiety. That on the other side of that cross, there's no torment. That on the other side of that cross, the pain is gone. It's over. On the other side of that cross, there's no shame. On the other side of that cross, there's no condemnation. That if I simply say yes to God and walk through whatever it is that God has called me to walk through, if I say yes to God and endure whatever it is that God has called me to endure on the other side of that cross there's joy waiting for me on the other side of that cross there's joy set before me it's as if Jesus could look through the cross and see the father standing on the other side with his hands full of joy going come on Jesus come on son come on son I've got this joy this crown of everlasting joy that's about to crown your head there's joy set before you And what causes us to resist our cross is that it don't look like joy. All I see is the pain set before me, the loss set before me. But brothers and sisters, there's joy. There's joy. So embrace it quickly. Say yes to God quickly. Some of you are in your Gethsemane. Some of you are in your Gethsemane with the place that God's called you to be, whether it's your marriage, your job. And once again, don't get me wrong, when it comes to your job, sometimes God says, go. I'm not saying that you're, see, 
The enemy always loves to take words like this and use them to bring us into bondage. Because there's at least one person who's thinking about quitting their job or moving to a new place, and the devil's telling you, see, this word is for you. You're not supposed to move. You're not supposed to leave. You're supposed to stay at this job. That's no, that's, that's condemnation. But you know in your spirit what this word is about. And if not, if you seek the Lord, he'll show you. He'll show you. For some of you, this word is just preparation because you, you haven't hit your Gethsemane yet. But when you do, you'll be making a list of your 12. <laughs> and you'll be reaching out. You better make that list now. And you should probably approach them and say, hey, man, you want to be in my Gethsemane 12? <laughs> That's what you should call it, Gethsemane 12. We should call our community group ministry. <laughs> The Gethsemane 12. <laughs> Just kidding. No. It's, it's not that serious. There's so many different directions that we can come at the cross from. But tonight, the simple direction that we're coming at the cross is it's the place where Jesus made the decision, I'm going to walk in full obedience. 100%. I'm going all the way. I've decided to follow Jesus. I'm going all the way. I'm not going to have one little thing in my life that I know is not like him, but Lord, just look over this one. No, I'm going all the way. I'm going all the way. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. I'm going all the way. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work in us what you worked in Jesus that night in Gethsemane. He was honest. He said, I'm sorrowful, transparent. He was real. He said, Father, I don't want to do this. I can't handle it. But at the end of the night, he was submitted. He said, nevertheless, your will be done, not mine. Let your will be done. Lord, tonight we're going to partake of your body and blood. And I pray that this would be true communion. What we wish to commune with tonight is the sheer power of your obedience. We wish to come into communion with the obedience of Jesus. The obedience of Jesus that said, I'm going all the way. I'm going all the way. That's what we need, Lord Jesus. And Holy Spirit, we need you to work that surrender into us, that commitment to us. We need you to work that into us. That's what we're crying out for tonight. That's what we're asking you for tonight. That spirit of Jesus that says, not my will, but yours be done. If this cup can't be taken away, then let's do this. Let's do this. The cup that the Father has given me to drink, will I not drink it? Holy Spirit, deal with our fear. Because Lord, whenever we hit our Gethsemane, obedience becomes a point of fear. Obedience becomes a point of fear. But Father, I pray tonight in the name of Jesus that you would overstep our fear and replace it with faith. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, 
No turning back. No turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. I've decided to follow Jesus. Father, I pray that we would come into communion tonight with your total obedience to the Father. With your total obedience to the Father. I pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. As the ushers, amen, that's okay. As the ushers pass out the elements, I want us to just examine our hearts. They're just going to give them to you. Just hold it. Don't take it yet. Just hold it. Don't take it yet. We're going to partake together. The scripture says that a man should examine himself before we partake. Examine our hearts so that we make sure that we're not partaking in an unworthy manner. It doesn't mean that you can't be a, an unworthy partaker. All of us are unworthy partakers. But partaking in an unworthy manner, it means unpenitent, with no humility. A worthy manner is simply the man in the temple who would not even look up his face, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's a worthy manner. That's a worthy manner. So let's just take a moment right now. Examine your heart before the Lord.